And as you do, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 90, 8 to 10-year-olds. You are dismissed to your class this morning. Hope you have a wonderful time in there. We'll be looking this morning together at Psalm 90, and as you turn there, it's waking up from your turkey coma still. Surprised that uh, Christmas season is already upon us. Uh, the end of the year is upon us. It's, it's all happened so quickly and at the same time so slowly. Uh, it's this, this strange dynamic of time passing, the, the years passing. We come to the end of the year sometimes is when we are most apt to reflect on that reality and think about how slowly the days go by and yet how quickly the years fly past. Songs throughout the centuries have tried to capture this. Uh, And in many ways, even songs from unbelievers, some of the most popular songs um, that have risen to the top of popularity are perhaps because of the way that they try to capture this sense that we have that uh, time is is flying by so quickly. Uh, One example, the beginning of the song, you hear alarm bells ringing as though time is up. And then the clock begins to tick. And then the ticking of the clock becomes the beating of a heart. The beating of the heart becomes the beat of the song. And the lyrics sing, Tired of lying in the sunshine, staying home to watch the rain. You're young and life is long, and there is time to kill today. And then one day you find ten years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. And you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. Every year is getting shorter. You never seem to find the time. Plans that either come to naught or just half a page of scribbled lines. Hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. The time is gone. The song is over. I thought I'd something more to say. Pink Floyd, Time, 1973. (laughs) Those great theologians, Pink Floyd. (laughs) It's not often I make a habit of quoting Pink Floyd on a Sunday morning, but I think it really captures this sense that we all have. It's no surprise that some of the most famous songs of all time, even by non-Christians, seem to be grasping at something, trying to untangle the way that time is slipping away from us. Our lives are passing by. We often wonder if we're really spending them the way that we're supposed to, but we carry with, with us this, this heavy sense that it's, it's getting away from us faster than we can really figure it out. We have a sense that our life and our time are limited, the clock is ticking, and we're not even sure what to do about it. In the moments when we're most honest with ourselves, which is rare, in the quiet of our own hearts, we feel uncertain that for all our efforts in life, uncertain we're doing it right, 
making the most of this thing, being the person we're supposed to be, the parent we're supposed to be, the spouse that we're supposed to be. It doesn't matter how young or how old you are. If you're looking ahead to life, trying to figure out if what you're supposed to be, or if you're right in the midst of it, trying to figure out if you're doing it right, or if perhaps you're in the final chapter, looking back and wondering if you spent it well. We are asking ourselves constantly how to make the most of this brief and passing gift, and perhaps especially at the end of the year, looking towards the next, how to maximize our joy, our happiness in this life. And so this morning, we turn to Moses towards the end of his life in Psalm 90, hear from him on this very topic. You can see at the the top there, the the superscript above verse 1, Psalm 90 says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. He is a man. Moses felt what we feel. He lived on earth. He had a temporary life. He was an imperfect man, though used greatly by God. And he's given the title here, the man of God. That title is attributed to other men in Scripture who speak for God, but it's, a t- it's attributed to Moses at least four other places in Scripture, as are several other prophets and preachers, and it just kind of highlights Moses' close relationship with the Lord. Uh, it's funny, we, when we moved a while back, uh, we were meeting some of the neighbors, and you know, you're talking and getting to know each other, and uh, there's always that awkward moment as a pastor when people ask what you do. You could say almost anything else, but if I say a pastor, it's like people don't know what to do with that. And uh, so at Discount Tire the other day, a guy asked me, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. He goes, oh. (laughs) And it was like he was frozen. He wasn't sure what to say next. Like, it's okay. I almost want to like, hey, it's all right. It's Okay. Uh, but we're, we're moving in, we're meeting the neighbors, and, and our neighbor uh, says, so what do you do? And I, I said, I'm, I'm a pastor at Canyon Bible Church of Prescott. And she said, oh, it'll be so nice to have a man of God in the neighborhood. <laughs> like, oh, I don't know. I don't know about all of that. I understand the thought, though, right? Uh, as we think about our, our lives, our time, I think that's really what we want, isn't it? We want a man of God. We want to hear from a man of God who will tell us, what does the Lord say about this life? How do I live it well? Because we want to hear from God about this. And so we turn to Psalm 90, a, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This is the oldest psalm in the Psalter. Uh, we know that because it's the only one written by Moses. I don't know why they put it as 90th. You would think this would be like Psalm 1. But for whatever reason, when they organized the Psalter, they put this as the introduction to Book 4, Psalm 90 of the Psalms. And you can look into all of the reasons why people think that might be the case. Um, But this is nonetheless the oldest Psalm in the Psalter, and therefore some of the oldest recorded Scripture that we have, along with the Book of Job, which would have been the first thing to be written, and then the Pentateuch, this Psalm 90 would have been written somewhere during the wilderness wanderings when uh, Moses had led the people out of 
Egypt was leading them towards the promised land, and before he died on Mount Nebo, he would have penned Psalm 90 at some point in there. And so, what a great thing as we learn from Moses, looking back on his life, and in many ways, the opportunity for us to learn from his reflections and prayers on the meaning of life. And so, we're going to learn from Moses here three ways to pray for and live a meaningful life. Three ways to pray for and live a meaningful life. First, pray about mortality. Moses spends the first six verses of this prayer simply talking to God about who he is in relationship to time and who we are in relationship to time. Look at verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. At the, the writing of this psalm, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and they actually had no permanent home at the time. This, this is picturesque of the reality of our lives. Right? We have no true home but God. In all of our dwelling, in all of our life, we're dwelling in His creation that He Himself holds together. As Acts 17.28 says, in Him we live and move and have our being. Moses understood this, and he begins this prayer simply reflecting on the simple fact that for all of our travels, all of our schedules, all of our appointments and timetables and events of our lives, it is all lived within the circle of God's embrace. He continues this reflection in verse 2. Before the mountains were born, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Hebrew, literally says, before the mountains were born. Clever word choice for Moses, who repeats words like this, birth and death, life and time, morning and evening, throughout this psalm, really emphasizing the theme of life and death in Psalm 90. It's just a great reminder, before the mountains were born, before God had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, He is God. We might drive by and look up at the loftiest, long-standing ancient mountains covered with centuries of snow and might feel dwarfed by the thought of their age. God still looks at them and says, Oh, I remember the day you were born like it was yesterday. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. Earth and world, this isn't repetition, uh, but emphasis. The Hebrew word for earth refers to the physical planet, while the Hebrew word for world refers to the people who inhabit the planet, the earth and the world. God birthed and formed them both, the planet the people who live on it. It is His creation. It is something that He gave birth to. Before the mountains were born, before the world was formed, before humanity was created, from eternity to eternity, God exists. Let's just admit the fact that that is just impossible for us to comprehend the reality of. Moses would have remembered how God introduced himself to Moses from the burning bush. I am 
that I am. Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? Tell them I am sent you. God simply is. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. Mankind, on the other hand, is quite different, and Moses is drawing the contrast here in verses 1 through 6. And in his prayer, he is meditating on the relationship of God and man to time and how different they are. Look at verse 3. Notice the contrast. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. You know what the Hebrew word for man is? Adam. The man God created from dust. It's the word for man in the Hebrew. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of Adam. Or in the words of the great theologians, Kansas, slips away, and all your money won't another moment buy dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Song after song, you can find throughout the ages trying to capture this reality of how we can't seem to grasp at the meaning of life. And apart from God, that is entirely true. We are just dust in the wind, and we cannot figure out the meaning of life apart from the fact that He has very simply revealed it to us. He's given it to us. That's why you're not here to hear from me this morning. Nobody cares what Jason Drum thinks. We want to know, we want to hear from the man of God because we want to hear from God. We all come from a man whom God created from dust. We are nothing but animated dust. I just don't think that we think about this often enough. Moses, reflecting on the meaning of life, is reflecting on the simple reality that we're just dust. Or it's just about as close to nothing as you can get. Just dust. We were brought to life by the breath of this God who is life. The emphasis noted by the repeated word here, return, return. Yes, we were created from the dust. We are returning to the dust. And we return at the voice of the same God who spoke us into existence when He says, return. The picture here is the way that God sovereignly reigns over the passing of generations, created by His voice from dust, returning to the dust by His voice. Friends, we do not die because of cancer. We do not ultimately die because of COVID. We do not die because of car accidents. We do not die because of strokes or brain hemorrhages. We die by the decree of God. Return to the dust, and we return. Again, Moses keeps flipping the contrast back and forth as he meditates on the relationship of God to time and the relationship of man to time. Now he says in verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years go by, it's nothing to God. 
How big of a deal is yesterday, right now? Today, how much does it really feel like yesterday matters? That's like the last thousand years to God. It's just like yesterday. The passing of time is nothing to Him. He's not limited to one physical location like we are, and He's not limited to one temporal location like we are. This is what theologians call the supratemporality of God, or we might say the omnipresence of God in time. As Moses understands the perspective of his life, it's lived within the context of the God who does not merely live, but who is life. He doesn't merely exist. He is the eternal source of existence. And now Moses turns his attention back to the sovereignty of God over the passing death of mankind. Verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Generation after generation, born, learn, grow, work and grow old, suffer, die, and God sits in sovereignty over the ongoing death of generation after generation, swept away like a flood. Do you sense almost the, the bleak tone of this psalm? It's almost like you want to say, Moses, man, lighten up. And yet we know it's good for us to ponder the realities of these things. It's good to go to the house of mourning to consider the end of man. Moses says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. Verse 6, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. This is the picture of generation after generation after generation. It might as well have just been a day to God, morning, evening. The grass grows, it dies. Generation comes and they go. Notice the, the imagery. Three pictures Moses compares. We're like a, death is like a flood. We're swept away. We are like a dream. We're like grass. Just highlighting the, the seeming, seemingly insignificant nature of our lives. Spurgeon said, the history of grass is this. Sown, grown, mown, blown. And the history of man is not much more. Now, your life is like a dream, not because you're going to wake up in the matrix one day, but because you think about how just seemingly insignificant a dream is. You wake up in the morning and all the details of the dream are kind of foggy and then you go make your coffee and by the end of the day, you barely even remember you had that dream. It's like it just barely matters. That's the picture Moses paints of our entire life. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood. You just think how many thousands of people die on earth every hour. Just while you sit here during this 45-minute sermon, 5,174 people will breathe their last breath on earth on average. About 500 times the number of people sitting in this room today die every day on earth. They're just swept away like a flood. 
your entire generation is dying. Everyone you've ever known. Everyone you went to high school with, every, every face you've ever seen smile, we're all just swept away like a flood of death. This is a really meaningful metaphor for Moses too. I mean, just think about Moses' perspective. He and the Israelites, when they were being led out of the promised land, you remember what happened to the Egyptians in the Red Sea? They would have seen thousands of Egyptians swept away in the waters of the Red Sea as it closed in on them, and they all died in an instant. Moses is looking back on his life and pondering and saying, that's what all of us are like. Our lives are so brief, so seemingly insignificant, we're all just swept away like a flood. Moses also would have just written Genesis around this same time, and so that'd mean he'd be familiar with, and the Israelites would be familiar with the story of Genesis 6, the flood, where God's judgment coming down, bringing about death of countless souls, literally sweeping them away in a flood. And the flood was not for nothing. It wasn't just a whim of God. It was punishment for sin. The Egyptians were not swept away in the Red Sea for nothing. It was punishment for sin. God's curse upon Adam that we would return to the dust was not for nothing. It was a punishment for sin. And for this reason, as Moses continues in Psalm 90, his reflections move from the relationship of God and man to mortality into a reflection on the relationship of God and man to morality. Because these two are inextricably linked. Our mortality is because of our morality. The problem that we have with time is because of the problem that we have with sin. So we're looking at three ways we want to learn to pray for and live a meaningful life from Moses. First, pray about mortality. Second, pray about morality. Get this from verses 7 through 11 where that's exactly what Moses does in this ongoing meditation Uh, Moses has been talking with God about his eternal nature and our temporal limitations. And verse 7 will now announce what hasn't yet been mentioned in this prayer, but it is the natural line of thought that death is a punishment. Our mortality is because of our morality. Verse 7 says, we are brought to an end, that is our death, by your anger and by your wrath we are dismayed. Why is God angry? Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So when when verse 3 said you return man to dust, it's clear that Moses had Genesis 3.19 in mind here, right? After Adam and Eve sinned, God brings the curse of judgment upon the earth and upon mankind, and he specifically says By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's because of our sin, the suffering in this life, the sense of meaninglessness, the way we can't seem to catch up and make the most out of the time that we've been given the thing that will bring us to an end, our death, 
is the wrath of God against our sin. See, He created us to walk with Him in this life, to represent Him on this earth. And instead, we've walked away from Him and sought to use this life and this earth for our own personal gain apart from Him. That's what we call sin. It is, it is a rebellion against not just God, but against the very purpose of our lives. It is a disregard for the actual meaning of our lives. I mean, now wonder so many songs have been written through the ages struggling with the meaning of life. God has actually told us what it is, and we walk away into the darkness trying to figure it out for ourselves. If you want to live a meaningful life, it helps to realize that life has already been assigned a meaning. We don't have to guess Life has been given meaning. Your life has a purpose and a meaning assigned by the one who created it, who brought us to life, animated us from the dust, and who still reigns over it to this day. He created us to know Him and to make Him known in this world. He created us to experience His character in a relationship with Him and then to spread His character far and wide with our lives. We so easily forget that, so easily forget why He made us. And for that reason, He is angry, and rightfully so. You can even hear Moses' sense of, of, of desperation. You can hear the experience of the wilderness wanderings that he's been walking through for years now. You can hear it in these verses, and it accurately pictures the futility of our lives too. Look at verse 9. All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? It's like, who can even appreciate how angry God is about sin? How horrible His wrath is towards those of us who ignore Him? You know, our biggest problem in life is that God is good. Because we're not. That is, the biggest problem humanity is facing is the goodness of God. He cannot and will not tolerate sin, and we are all sinful. You even sense that and feel that in the way that Moses is talking. He says, he sets our sins in the light of his presence, as clear as day. And there's no light that compares to the light of the one who created the sun, The light of His presence illuminates in and through our most hidden sins. You can hide sin from people pretty easily, but the Maker sees all. His gaze pierces the deepest of mountain caves and the depths of every human heart over an infinite stretch of timeline. So there's the bad news. But it's interesting that Moses spends so much of this psalm meditating, talking with the Lord, no questions yet, no requests, 
No, God, here's what I need you to do for me today. God, give us travel mercies. God, bless us with this. God, help me to just, Lord, this is who you are. We know it. God, this is who we are. We're desperate. God, we we feel this sense of meaningless of our lives. He's just talking to the Lord about reality, meditating on mortality, meditating on morality. And as we're learning from Moses, three ways to pray for and live a meaningful life. We'll look third now at verses 7 through 11. Pray not just about mortality, not just about morality, but then pray about your life. But not until you've spent time meditating and thinking on the the truths of the eternality of God, the the brevity of your life, the, the seeming insignificance of the death of generation after generation. Only after spending most of his prayer meditating on the stark contrast between who God is and who we are, does Moses now seek to ask God for what his life should look like. And it'd be really easy in a sermon on this psalm to just skip fast over those first six really depressing verses. Hey, life is short. We're all going to be swept away in a flood of death. You're all sinful and God's mad. Happy Sunday. Glad you came to be encouraged this morning. It'd be really easy to skip over those those first 11 verses where Moses is talking through those things, it's not until he gets to verse 12, the final verses of this psalm, that he now begins to ask God. In light of all of those truths he's been meditating on, now he's in the right frame of mind. I think sometimes in prayer we're so quick to get to what we want. We aren't trying so much to talk to the Lord who made us, as much as we're just showing up to ask for stuff. Dad, can I get the car keys? We just want our problems fixed. Moses spends more time in this prayer meditating on the character of God than he does talking to God about what he wants from God. Perhaps we just learn from that in our personal prayer life. I mean, it doesn't mean that like every time you sit down for dinner, you get to have like 30 minutes of prayer. But maybe just in our personal prayer life, we could learn to spend more time just meditating on the character of God, the reality of who He is, how He's made us, the, the very nature of our lives and what He's made us for. Maybe then we'd be in a better place to make sure when we start asking God for things, that we're asking for the right things. It's interesting to note, too, that the Psalms are the songbook of the Bible, too, right? This would have been the songbook, the hymnal of the temple. So it's kind of a good lens for us to take a minute to look at our worship songs and even think through just in light of this song, this prayer that Moses has penned for the Israelites to sing how much of the lyrics of the song are just about who God is and who we are. It's not just a song asking God for a bunch of blessings. We don't need to think more about ourselves and what we want from God. We need to think more about God. We need to think more about who He is 
We need to spend more time meditating on what he's done. As you think about that, like, do you spend time confessing your sin to God in prayer? Like, I, I know you know you're supposed to. And I know we all say, yeah, 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 yeah. I, of course I confess my sin. But how much time do we actually spend talking to God, telling him what he already knows, acknowledging to him our sense of brokenness, acknowledging the reality of our sin to him? Do we confess to him our weakness? feeling that we have inability, the brevity of our lives, sense that we're not doing it all right. If we want to live a meaningful life, we want our lives to count for something, it's good for us to start by talking with Him about the thing that's going to prevent that from happening, our sin. We need more of verses 1 through 11 in our prayers, don't we? Before we jump to what we want from God. And then when we get to, God, here's what I'm asking of you, we'll actually be asking for the right things. And Moses models that for us. He begins now to ask God for the first time for certain blessings, certain answers to prayer. He says, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So teach us, Lord, in light of the fact that you are eternal, you're spanning the timeline of eternity, and you just are. And we, on the other hand, are just like a vapor, generation after generation, born, living, dying, over and over again, passing away so quickly. In light of the fact that our life is just a vapor, Lord, would you teach us to number our days? that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now, notice that Moses is not asking God for help to know how long we have to live because verse 10, he already said that. He actually stated exact numbers and said, verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. So there you go. You get an average age span of 70 to 80 years. Moses got a little bit longer than that. So, but notice the math that Moses is asking for here is a math of perspective. Help us to order our days according to the right priorities. In light of eternity, God, help us to live well. Teach us to spend our days carefully. Help us to, to budget them like we only have a limited number and stop living like this is just going to keep going on. Help us to spend our days getting wisdom so that we'll use our lives for things that are actually going to matter. Moses is old when he's writing Psalm 90. He's very old. And he's asking to learn. God, teach us to number our days. He doesn't assume after all of the years that he's spent talking to God, all of the decades that he's been leading God's people, all of the times that God revealed Scripture to him and he wrote it down, Moses doesn't assume he's got it all figured out. Even after decades upon decades of life as an old man, Moses is asking God, Lord, would you teach me? Help me to learn well. Help me to be a good student of yours, God. 
He's also asking for mercy. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Moses knew that God had visited them, and he knew that the Lord would return. And I wonder how often we really pray for this and really mean it. I mean, if we're being honest, when we, when we hear prayers like this, God, come quickly, we often wonder like, yeah, I know, but I kind of like what I got going on right now. Like, I'm really hoping that this thing works out for me and I've got some more time and I'd like to be able to do more of this and do more of that before God comes back. You know, the best thing that could happen to my life would be for, for Jesus to return and end it, taking us back to heaven with him. And the reason that we don't often feel that is because we don't spend enough time in our prayer meditating on the truths of verses 1 through 11. We're just too quick to talk to God about what we want here and now for this life. We're often trying to get satisfaction from this world. And so the thought of Him coming back and, in a sense, taking the world away from us makes us feel like we'd be losing something that we want, that we need. Because we don't realize that He is everything that we want and need. The world has nothing for us compared to the eternal one. And that's why Moses continues in this prayer. Look at verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. God, satisfy us with you, with your love. Not just with this manna that you've been providing for us every morning, God. Give us you. Give us you. Otherwise, we're going to waste our lives being driven by our hunger for lesser things. Lord, if you don't satisfy us, we're going to pursue everything else for satisfaction, and it's not going to work, and we'll waste our lives doing it. So Moses says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. If we're going to rejoice and be happy all our days, it's, it's not going to come from the stuff out here that we pursue. It's going to have to come from the Lord. Real satisfaction. That's, that is the meaning of our lives, that we would be satisfied by Him and then become a source of satisfaction for others. Now, this is the very thing that Jesus promised right on the last day of the feast in John 7 when He stood up and said, anyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But anyone who drinks of the water that I give, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's what it looks like to live a life well. To be so satisfied by the loving kindness of the Lord that we then become a source of that same satisfaction for others, pouring it out into other people's lives. And there's really no greater way that, this, that God has done this than through the gospel. Moses understood that our sin hinders the meaning and the purpose of our lives. It, it robs us of that satisfaction that we were made for. He also understood that it would be God's steadfast love that would repair the brokenness, and he knew that the Lord was returning to make it happen. It was Moses who wrote the first gospel, in a sense, in Genesis 3.15, 
When Adam and Eve had plunged the world into sin, God said to them in the midst of the curse, promised that a descendant of Eve would come and crush the head of the serpent. A descendant, a man born into time and space named Jesus Christ, was and is the eternal God, stepping out of eternity and into time to repair all with his own birth and death, with his own brief life. Moses is here seen turning to God, a sense of repentance and faith, confessing his sin. He says, have mercy on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Verse 16 let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Help us to see your work, God. You made this world for something. You have a purpose for all of this. You are working. You are seeking to accomplish things. Help us to see what it is so we spend our lives well. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let us see what you're accomplishing in the world, God. And of course, Jesus sent his disciples out for that very reason. He said, go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. So we recognize that the, the purposes of God are continuing as He stepped down into time as a man, Jesus Christ, and died on the cross in our place to, to forgive our sin. We, like Moses, turn confessing our sin, turn in repentance, trusting Jesus Christ, and then we take His character poured out into our lives and we pour it out in every place we can find. We talk to everybody we can about it. It becomes the, the single defining characteristic of our lives because that's exactly what God made us for, to know Him and to make Him known. And so Moses concludes this psalm, verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. See, notice here, verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants, Lord, and then establish the work of our hands. There's no greater way for us to ensure that our life will be meaningful than to spend our life on the meaning that God has assigned to it, knowing Him, making Him known. Let his work be our work. His character, he's so graciously revealed to us as he satisfies our hearts, should be by every one of us then repeated and reflected from our lives out into the lives of others. What are we prioritizing when we think about our lives? When we come to the end, we lay on our deathbed. You've heard it said, life is lived between two hospitals. When we come to the end, what will we look back on and see we've invested our time in? 
this very brief amount of it that we've been given, what will we be able to say to the Lord? This is what I did with my life, God. Here's how I invested it. Here's what I made my priorities. He pours himself into us, satisfying our hearts. Then we take and pour more of him into this world, into the lives of those around us. I had a deep sense of this. This is going to sound really silly. This last Friday night, I was really had a great sense of meaning and purpose in my life while stepping in chicken poop, in our chicken coop. We normally have college Bible study on Friday nights, so I'm not home, but because it was the week of Thanksgiving, we were off, I was home. Uh, Something was wrong with the heat lamp for the chickens, and so rather than sending my daughters out who are responsible for the chickens, I went out into the cold to troubleshoot a heat lamp in a chicken coop in the cold. I'm out there in the dark, squishing chicken feces under my slippers, which I should have taken off and put on shoes before I went out there. There's these dumb birds attacking me when I'm trying to help them. (laughs) Down the street, I can hear loud and clear a huge party happening. There's like sensual music playing. I can hear people shouting and laughing. And I wonder, squatting there in the chicken coop for, for just a brief minute, I just wondered, like, what am I doing out here in the cold? Like, is this really what I'm spending my life on? I mean, it sounds silly, but it's just one of those little midlife crisis moments, you know? Like, what am I doing? Is this really what I want to be doing with my life? Like, it's Friday night. Shouldn't I be out enjoying my life somewhere? doing something fun? Should I be dancing or drinking? Like, there's a lot to be had out there in this world. I can walk down to that party right now. I can hear where it's coming from. I know which house that is. Am I really spending my life the way that I want to? It's just a very honest moment of personal reflection. And of course, The Lord would bring that up when I've been studying Psalm 90 all week, right? In light of those few seconds of temptation, you know how many thoughts can be condensed into just a few seconds of temptation. In light of those few seconds of temptation to spend my life on myself, I found myself really grateful to be out in the cold fixing the heat lamp in the chicken coop because it meant that my daughters didn't have to be out in the cold. I was caring for them, not the chickens. That's God in a small way pouring his character through my life and into theirs. I went back inside and I just can't tell you how much joy I found in just tucking my kids into bed, smiling at them, pulling the covers up over them, kissing them goodnight. Just in these little ways puts the character of God on display 
in the way that he's given me to live. And after we got the kids into bed, I made my wife's favorite tea for her, and I don't know if I ever found so much happiness making a cup of tea. Sometimes it's in these really small moments that can carry the most meaning. But then if we're honest with ourselves, we're thinking rightly about our lives, that's all we have, is just a bunch of small moments. And this is what God calls us to. We just take the eternal character of God, his gospel, his loving kindness, and we, we bring it down in a sense. He pours it into our hearts and we bring it down into the, the brief and passing moments of our days. It changes our priorities and it stamps infinite meaning and lasting purpose on what otherwise would be a meaningless and short-lived seconds of our lives. So Father, as we've had the opportunity this morning to look at Psalm 90, we're grateful for the perspective of Moses, grateful that you've recorded it for us here in Scripture, and grateful that you've given us the opportunity to think about this. Here as we approach the end of the year and the beginning of another one, Lord, we know people who have died. We will continue to know people who die. We too recognize our own death is approaching. Our lives are brief and short and apart from you, meaningless. But Father, we have such a deep sense of wanting our lives to count for the sake of eternity. We want our lives to be meaningful and purposeful and we know, Lord, that that comes as we continue to meditate on the truth that you've revealed to us in your word and we have a deeper understanding of the meaning that you have assigned to our lives, the, the purpose for which you created us, to know you, to make you known. And so we're asking, Father, in light of that, would you teach us, Canyon Bible Church of Prescott, to number our days? They're so brief. We have so few to spend. We want to make them count, Lord. And we see so clearly the way that our sinful desires so often break and hinder our ability to spend our lives well. So we're just looking to you and asking, Lord, would you have mercy on your servants? Would you use us to put your character on display in this world? Lord, help us not to get in the way of what you're trying to accomplish through our lives. Give us a, a deep sense of your eternality and the brevity of our own lives so that we'll spend it well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.